Hello and welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. I'm joined today by Professor Lewis Appleby of the University of Manchester, and we're going to be talking about the National Confidential Inquiry uh, into Suicide and Homicide uh, by People with Mental Illnesses. Hello, Lewis. Hello. To begin with, I'd like to know a little bit about what the the point, what the philosophy of, of the National Confidential Inquiry is. We start with the assumption that that mental health care can be made safer. So if you think about the... We've been going now for 20 years in Manchester, and when we began, I suppose it's true to say there was a certain amount of scepticism that the clinical actions of individual teams or even individual practitioners might make a difference to safety. That sense that for some people, the combination of illness and some other problems meant that they were going to carry risk lifelong and that they, they're in, a, in a way that suicides and for that matter homicides might in the end be inevitable, very difficult to avoid at least. And so we set out in a way to try and disprove that and to, to say that that risk could be modified um, in the epidemiological jargon, but um, in a clinical sense that we could be better at prevention, that individual actions would be powerful, they would count, they would make a difference to people's survival, people's lives. And that's, that's where we started. And, and I think I remember some of the early discussions I had with clinicians about collecting data from them because we're very dependent on them. And uh, that scepticism was quite real. And it, it, it wasn't just a fatalism. It was a, a sense that most of the evidence that existed was about the link to uh, of suicide, say, to, uh, to unemployment and to social factors. Uh, and, and what can we as clinicians do about that? You know, if the economy is going badly, what can we as clinicians do to change the suicide risk? And there was a kind of pessimism uh, about it, and we, we wanted to change that. I think that there's one issue which clearly we have to, to discuss straight up, really, which is this issue of stigma. You know, I'm pretty sure that people listening to this podcast who have clicked on the link, seeing those words suicide, homicide, mental illness, um, are always quite quite worried about the association between those terms and the effect that has on the way the public perceive mental illness. So clearly you've had to proceed quite sensitively with your project. You're right, the, the, particularly in the, on the homicide part of the inquiry, the the, uh, the origin of that was that the government in the early 1990s set up the confidential inquiry, not, not initially with us, um, but they set it up because of so-called community care homicides uh, and the sense that the public were losing confidence in community care as a policy. So they wanted to show that they were doing something about that um, and collecting information, better information, was the, was the thing that they, that they decided to do. And it was the Royal College of Psychiatrists who persuaded the, the then government to expand this into uh, suicide as well, because the risk to patients was much greater. So we, we, um, we've been very conscious of that all along. The, the, the risk of stigma, just by talking about the issue of violence or homicide, I think is, is substantial. And for that reason, we've always tried to put out, uh, I suppose, rather careful messages about what the figures are showing. We've always tried to... Uh, do what we think of as balancing studies. So just in case publishing the figures alone is stigmatizing, we should study other areas of, uh, of this field. So we've looked at the, uh, mental health patients who are victims of violence, not just perpetrators. We've examined this issue of st so-called stranger homicides, which are, I suppose, at the heart of stigma, that sense in the public, that, that fear that somebody can be the victim of a random uh, attack by somebody who's mentally ill. I think we've, uh, we, we've tried to study those things in a way which would balance the message, that would reassure the public uh, and act as a kind of antidote to stigma. But it, it is an important question. It, just by talking about it, uh, is there a risk that, um, 
public fear and public prejudice may be stoked up, and we, uh, we're certainly very conscious of that. Uh, we, we, we send our reports to service user organizations and to the Time to Change campaign so that they can comment before we publish so that we, uh, on, um, on what we're about to say, what our messages are going to be. And I suppose part of this process is being very transparent about what you, you do. Um, I wonder if maybe for listeners who aren't familiar with the work of the inquiry, you could summarize the sort of process by which you uh, collect data and then handle it and process it. Yes, well, our remit is the safety of mental health care. So in the end, we collect quite detailed information about people who were mental health patients. So that's in having a contact with specialist mental health services in the 12 months before they died or before somebody else died. Uh, and uh, putting that information together in a way which might allow us to make uh, broader recommendations for the service as a whole. Uh, but to do that, we start by collecting information on every uh, death by suicide, regardless of uh, contact with services, and on every conviction for homicide, uh, regardless of whether mental health or mental illness was uh, part of the, the picture. So we have a essentially a complete national uh, register, if you like, a sort of a database which uh, includes the deaths of, um, of, a, of anybody by suicide over 20 years. So we've got uh, over 100,000 uh, people, and it's, it's an incredible sort of toll of tragedy, I suppose. Um, uh, that allows us to do our work. Uh, and we've got all the cases where somebody has been convicted of uh, homicide. And from there, we identify people who uh, were mental health patients by that 12-month definition. And from there, we get clinicians to send us information about the kind of care they were receiving and some of the other potential risk factors. So this has been going for, for 20 years, and if I think back to the world of 1996, the Internet's just getting going. Big data isn't even a, a term which I remember hearing much then. So, you know, your study, I, I mean, I feel it's a study that was way ahead of its time uh, when it started 20 years ago, and uh, it, it must have been an immense technical challenge um, considering the, the sort of state of the art of computers back then. Uh, ha have things sort of become more, more fluid over the years in your practice, or are there new challenges which are emerging? Well, the, the, it's certainly true that it was all um, done by, you know, post and by um, filling in paper questionnaires. And in fact, it's taken us quite a long time to be confident of electronic uh, means of data submission. Uh, we are now doing that more or less uh, universally. That's just a, we're just about getting there. That's because of uh, problems of, uh, well, concerns rather than problems of confidentiality. Uh, it's um, because, of course, we're, we're passing around uh, people's names and passing around data um, and um, uh, and it's also because uh, the the clinical community has taken time to uh, adapt to an electronic world so there's no point in sending um, people your email address in you know some years ago at least when they are not used to that that kind of that kind of communication when people feel more reassured by being able to fill in a form and put it in a confidential envelope so there are, for various human and uh, uh, ethical and electronic reasons it's taken some time for us to to get to the point we're at now which is a much greater focus on electronic submissions i suppose the other big thing that, that is the ethical change i mean the the you know who who controls data who who has access to personal data is a a very big issue now much bigger than it was in the 1990s and there are the ethical approvals that we have to go through in order to do the work that we do and store the information we have they are they are very substantial we it's quite a big part of the work of our administrative team is keeping on top of the uh, the approvals and securities that uh, that personal data now demand
And when you look back over those 20 years, what sort of impact has the study had? What would you say are your, your success stories? I think the success story that we have talked about most, I suppose, is the, the one about inpatient wards. Well, when we started, it's worth just remembering that when we started, the, the, there were no figures on how many inpatient suicides happened across the country. And so we set out to collect the numbers. Uh, and it turned out that there were over 200 deaths a year uh, on inpatient wards. Well, not on the wards, but among inpatients, some of them on the wards, some of them off the ward. And that was the first thing. We, just, we found that out. And we found that a very large number of them were by uh, hanging on the ward. Uh, and that quite often the means of hanging was a ward structure, like a, um, a non-collapsible curtain rail around a bed or around a shower. Uh, and uh, we... we we, I suppose we wanted to highlight this problem because essentially we were giving patients the means of self-destruction in the way that our wards were designed. And um, it just so happened that at that time, the Department of Health uh, under Liam Donaldson as Chief Medical Officer were looking for specific safety measures that could be taken and uh, across all services. And he approached us about the, the one that might happen in mental health and we, we said that we could improve the physical safety of our wards particularly on this issue of ligature points and so um, so the, gov the Department of Health issued a kind of decree those were in the days when it, when it did those kind of things and the, so the Department of Health asked every service to remove its ligature points particularly those curtain rails uh, and subsequently uh, not only did deaths of that kind drop and they have eventually fallen by over 70% but deaths of inpatients in general then also fell by a similar amount. So there was a, we now have about 60 or 70 deaths a year among inpatients. So you could say, well, that's still 60 or 70. We haven't solved the problem yet. But it is a third of what we were seeing just over 10 years ago. And that's quite a, quite a big difference. It's not caused by the reduction in, in the use of beds. It is a genuine effect on ward safety. And a tribute to the staff, I must say, a tribute to staff who've picked up the, the safety message. Now, on from that, we, we've, in the last couple of years, we've been doing a series of studies where we've looked at some of the recommendations that we've made and that some other bodies have made and tried to follow through the implementation of new clinical uh, services, changes in the, in the structure of the service locally or in the features of an organization. So what's been brought in by a, a mental health trust that might have had an impact on safety in response to our findings and other people's reports. And so we, and we've examined the, those effects and we've now, in, this, in our most recent report, which is reviewing 20 years of safety, we've set out 10 things that would, that, that, where we feel we've got reasonable evidence that they should be a feature of any service. And they, they are partly the features of the clinical front line, the, the, the actual teams and services, um, but they are also features of the organization behind that clinical front line. Uh, and so in the, the, one of the, the, the big things that we've just published is the, the broader answer to that question, not just ligature points, but the broader answer to what makes a, a modern mental health system safer. And it's and we've got it, we've got evidence for that. We've got um, research evidence to back this up. Now it's not just speculative um, report recommendation, and it is about safer wards, but it is also about following people up early when they are discharged from hospital. Uh, it's about a properly funded and staffed crisis uh, team, uh, an outreach service for people who might otherwise drift away from care, uh, specialist services that can tackle the problem of alcohol and drugs or dual diagnosis. Uh, and organizational features like uh, learning from incidents but involving the family when learning from incidents, that sense of a learning culture, uh, stability in staffing, 
and uh, and implementing nice guidance on depression. You, you know, there, we've actually got evidence that trusts that implement nice guidance on depression subsequently have uh, fewer patient suicides. And you talked about a learning culture. How do we stop that turning into a blame culture? Well, that's a really good question because when we started, I think people really felt that this, our work, whatever reassurances we tried to give them would eventually be the basis of blame. Uh, and uh, that runs very deep in, in mental health, and for good reason there has been a history uh, of that. Um, we have certainly ourselves made sure that our reports don't talk about, we, we never talk about individual errors or blame, we always talk about how the system works, so we're looking at how, our, how individuals operate within a system that could be safer. Uh, and so we, we, we try to avoid the, the blame that can go with individual inquiries. Uh, we don't think you can have blame and learning at the same time. Uh, and so we go for the learning. We have raised the possibility that sometimes uh, staff feel rather uh, fatalistic about about their role in suicide prevention, not just in mental health care, but outside as well. And that that, that might lead to a, a sense of inevitability about some deaths, that, uh, uh, which uh, we are not prepared to accept. So that, that we can see that that can happen at times. And we've tried to, with our findings, break down that uh, sense of inevitability, a culture of inevitability at times, I suppose. Um, but we've made it very clear that, you, that, the, that the key step in getting rid of any culture of inevitability is getting rid of the culture of blame. You can, you've got to do both. People will always respond defensively about their ability to prevent suicide if they feel that what might follow from their admission that something better could have been done is that they personally or that their service might be held as culpable. We, we, we have to move away from the, that blame culture if we are to have a, a sense of, uh, of being able to, uh, to, to prevent death, that sense of learning, that sense of uh, uh, better survival for patients. When I think about uh, the work, say, on ligature points, I think that's uh, something which is really tangible. I think that's something which anyone who's worked in an inpatient environment, it's a change which they've seen take place as a result of the inquiry. I mean, when I um, look back over the, the 20... Well, I was going to say a lot's changed in 20 years. A lot's has changed in the past year, actually. But let's just deal with the 20 years as a whole. Um, what, what patterns have you noticed uh, emerging over the last 20 years? What's changed in terms of uh, the patterns of suicide and the patterns of homicide which you've observed in, in both inpatients and, and outpatients in contact with services? Some uh, antecedents of suicide have become more prominent and, and homicide have become more prominent. Uh, so uh, we're seeing more uh, deaths of patients in which economic factors are part of the, uh, the, the that the sort of phase leading up to a death when, when risk is probably escalating. Uh, so people are facing more serious financial difficulties. There's more sign that they're having problems of, uh, with money or problems with their housing. Uh, we're, we're seeing more evidence of alcohol and drug misuse. That's true in both suicide and homicide. Uh, that's always been a risk factor, but we're seeing a lot of it at, at the moment as an antecedent. And, and we're seeing more self-harm. I mean, self-harm is one of the best recognized risk factors for suicide. But, but in fact, we're, we're seeing a, an increase in how often self-harm precedes suicide in mental health patients. So there is a changing pattern of risk. And I suppose the way we would put it is a changing pattern of opportunities for intervention, that uh, it therefore becomes much more important that we do something about the comorbid alcohol and drug problems, that we do more about self-harm uh, when 
uh, patients attend uh, A&E departments, that we do more about the social problems that our patients are facing, whether they're economic uh, or housing uh, or isolation. Uh, in the case of homicide, there's the additional uh, problem of losing contact with the service. Uh, that's very striking there. Uh, and, and, and alcohol and drugs are even more important. It's, very, it's actually very unusual for a mental health patient to, to commit a homicide unless they also have an alcohol or drug problem. And so the, the message is clear that, that on, on patient homicide, the two uh, preventive measures are to maintain contact with people with multiple comorbidities and to address those, the specific risk of substance misuse. And this brings us on to a bit of a, a difficult issue, which is that, you know, looking at the data you collect, which is from a, a, a sort of large numbers, one can think of, say, public health measures. But then I think it, it'll be every clinician's experience that when you get down to the individual level, uh, risk assessment is, is very, very difficult and a very imperfect tool. So how would you say that the data that you collect relate to individual risk assessment for clinicians? How might they be useful there? Might, are they useful at all? Well, the, the first thing we found about risk assessment was that most people who died, and for that matter, most uh, people who committed a homicide, in, in most cases, they, the, the risk was uh, unrecognized. Uh, and uh, so if we take suicide, the, um, uh, about half the people, the patients who, who die by suicide, have been seen by a mental health professional in the week before they die. Uh, and yet, uh, in the great majority of cases, the, um, about 85% of cases, the, uh, that, that risk has been viewed at that time as being, as being low. Uh, and, of course, there are different reasons for that. Uh, risk can change, uh, of course. Uh, it may be part of a, uh, a defensive response to our question, I suppose, for some people. Uh, but I think it is also that uh, people are very much influenced by, I suppose, the, 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 the list of risk factors which we carry in our heads and in our, our paperwork. Uh, and, and we're less, I think, influenced by the individual things that can happen to a person or the individual uh, features of an, a person's life which are signs or which are uh, pushing their risk. So, that, so we, we examined... Uh, this problem in more detail in a, in a study. So that we, we call this the low-risk paradox, that, that so many people are, who die are viewed as low-risk, that you have to reduce, uh, to, in order to reduce deaths by a significant amount, you'd have to reduce deaths in people who are thought to be low-risk. So how do you do that? Well, one way is to strengthen the system as a whole, to strengthen it for everybody, uh, and the, the highest-risk people will then be better protected, but there will be benefits across the, the board, across uh, all patients. Uh, the, the second thing is to look for models of personalized risk management. So personalization of care, a little bit of a cliche, but it, is, it does mean something important, which is that we don't treat everybody the same. Uh, and uh, risk management is just like that. But we haven't really got in clinical practice uh, an established personalized risk assessment model. We tend to use uh, forms. People are very, uh, particularly non-clinical staff, are very keen on checklists and forms. We are constantly asked in our work which is the best form to use for assessing risk, and the answer is there isn't one. Uh, the, the, the way to assess risk is to use clinical skills, to have support from colleagues, to have good delegation and supervision and training and so on. But we, uh, people are very attached to forms. I can, I can sort of see why. 
uh, but uh, the, 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 they are the antithesis of personalized risk uh, management they, they, because they create a kind of generic approach to risk which might miss the crucial individual factors in a person's complex life which could be putting them at risk or a sign that something is going badly for them. So that's one of the challenges for the future is enhancing this, uh, as, you, as you put it, personalized risk management. Uh, what other challenges and opportunities do you think that the confidential inquiry faces as we move on into future decades? I think the future for us is in uh, partly in, uh, in recognizing the way that uh, the, the boundary between mental health services and the, the, the rest of, the, of society has been, is being broken down. People move in and out of services much more now. Uh, and um, we have some services that operate, like, some, like IAPT in some parts of the country, that operates across the traditional boundary of primary and secondary care. So being able to talk just about what's happening to uh, specialist services, although that's our... Um, original remit and it's our core purpose uh, it's probably in itself not enough and uh, we have in the last uh, two years been studying uh, suicide by young people people under the age of 25 whether or not they were mental health patients and so we've um, uh, developed a, um, a different methodology for doing that and we've uh, our, our, our recommendations from that study we've had one report about it we're going to have another one next year so we've been doing a different style of study where we've been examining deaths by suicide of people who are under the age of 25, whether or not they were mental health patients, looking at their, the antecedents of death, looking for common factors between uh, individual deaths. Uh, and that uh, is it's quite an important study for us. We expect it to be a model for some of our, our future studies because there are some other groups out there who, and part of their... Um, uh, that, uh, of suicide prevention involves making mental health services safer for them. Let's, let's take middle-aged men, for example. They, they are the group with the highest risk of suicide across society at the moment. And we want to improve mental health care for them. But part of the issue is that they don't always seek mental health care. And we want to be able to say more about uh, what could uh, protect them, uh, even when they're not under mental health care. So they would be a, another good group to assess uh, and to collect data on try to make recommendations about w without sticking to our, our, our original remit. It's a very important remit because mental health services are where we should have our biggest focus for suicide prevention. On the other hand, I think it is important for us to look at uh, people who don't get access to mental health services and try to do more for them. And so I think for us, that's where, we, where I think we might be, might be heading. Uh, I think we've also got to think more about um, uh, safety in a broader sense. I think if you you talk to patients about safety, they, they don't always talk about uh, suicide risk, and they certainly don't talk about risk of, to, to other people. Uh, uh, they, they often talk about how safe they feel um, under mental health care, whether they're going to be safe on a ward, whether they're safe in taking the medications that we uh, prescribe. They talk about whether their human rights will be protected uh, if they are under mental health care, and in particular under the Mental Health Act. So safety to many patients and service users is a different concept, and I think we have to be respectful of that. I think we will be looking at ways in which we can absorb that into our that, that kind of concept into our work without losing sight of the of, of the importance of uh, of mortality, the importance of of suicide prevention in particular, and the the terrible impact of suicide on families, which we we will have as our main purpose uh, 
uh, into the future. Well, plenty of work done, plenty of work still to do. Uh, congratulations on 20 years, Lewis, and many thanks for joining us. And thanks to you, the listener, for downloading this podcast. I hope you'll join us again next time for the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast, but for now, goodbye. <laughs>